power hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Today we're going to be talking about well, actually, I will introduce it in the next segment with our interviewee, Rob Bradley. But suffice it to say, listen, and I will talk to you on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We're joined now by Rob Bradley of the Institute for Energy Research, great friend of mine and of, and of the program. Rob, welcome back to Power Hour. It's good to be with you, Alex. So the reason I brought you on this week is because um, we're going to start on the show talking about the different topics that I'm covering in my upcoming book, which is tentatively called The Case for Fossil Fuels. And in the first chapter, one thing I'm going to talk about extensively is the fact that the ideas that we hear about fossil fuels as an addiction, as this thing that's depleting our resources, um, dirtying our environment, destroying our planet. These are not new ideas, and the prescriptions that have been made about them are not new prescriptions. Uh, and it's important to know that because there were dramatic policy prescriptions made in the name of these ideas 30, 40 years ago, and we didn't follow them, and certain results happened. So that's that's a bit of a preview. I brought you on because you have so much great work that you've done in the realm of, of energy thought. So where do you, if, if you look at opposition to fossil fuels throughout history, where would you start? Probably with uh, William Stanley Jevons' 1865 book that was entitled The Coal Question, subtitled An Inquiry uh, Concerning the Problems in the, uh, of the Nation and the uh, Probable Exhaustion of Our Coal Mines. Uh, and this was a book uh, that was really the birth of energy economics, or more generally, mineral resource economics. And what Jevons said was that um, minerals, uh, in, uh, prominently including coal, cannot be synthetically reproduced. They're produced by nature over uh, millions of years. Um, so he's talking really about all fossil fuels here, even though he focuses on coal. And uh, here we are in our country of Great Britain. Uh, we are uh, mining coal uh, to uh, meet all of our needs, uh, and we export uh, one half of the coal that's used around the world. But we're having to mine deeper, and the cost of mining coal is going to have to go up and our homegrown industry is eventually going to become so high cost that it's not competitive in the world market and the and coal will be produced in the United States and other places where it's more plentiful so this will create a crisis uh, in our nation uh, the economy will slow down and our young people will all 
uh, leave to go to more prosperous areas of the world. So uh, the coal question in 1865 was really uh, an alarmist uh, book. It was sort of uh, extending the uh, views of Malthusianism from Robert Thomas Malthus uh, to energy, and particularly uh, coal. So this was the beginning of great concerns uh, over fossil fuels, but this particular concern was just about uh, uh, depletion. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting, and I think we might have even discussed this last time you were on the program, that there are different forms of opposition, and this is this is a form of opposition saying fossil fuels are extremely good, and, and Jevons has some very memorable quotes about what happens when you don't have fossil fuels and how superior they were to other forms of, of power. Uh, and he's saying, he's saying it's sad that we'll lose it, which is a lot different than saying it's inherently evil. Right, right. Yeah, Jevons was very clear in this book saying there's no going back to the uh, energy world prior to coal, which is really the energy world prior to fossil fuels, because uh, falling water, blowing wind, these resources are very limited, they're very expensive, and they're very unreliable. So that, that sounds like a pretty familiar analysis. Yes, and, and this is the beginning of the whole uh, question of sustainable development or sustainability, and these are terms that became popular in the 1980s and are still very popular today. So when you hear the term uh, sustainable development, um, chances are they're talking about energy, uh, and that gets us to uh, depletion, which was the sort of uh, a historic concern with uh, oil, gas, and coal to pollution and climate change. Um, to ask another question about, about depletion, though, or well, I think l let's spend a little bit of time on, on depletion. And for those who want more on this, you can listen to our other Power Hour episode, but also read the book Capitalism at Work, which has the best history I know of of this, uh, this debate on depletion and, and showing you some of the better figures as well and what their ideas are. I'm curious... What has been the emphasis throughout the history of, of this depletion idea um, of fossil fuels versus other resources? Because certainly there's a lot of talk by people like Paul Ehrlich um, in contrast to people like Julian Simon about it's not just we're going to run out of fossil fuels, but we're going to run, run out of all these other resources which are sort of more physical elements, but still we're going to run out of them. Well, the, uh, what Jevons started in the, in the 1860s, um, uh, it sort of went dormant because uh, in the same decade that um, Jevons was writing, we had the discovery of commercial quantities of oil in the United States, uh, in uh, Pennsylvania, and then uh, other states joined in. So we didn't have a shortage of anything. We really had a surplus. Uh, uh, generally, uh, uh, crude oil prices uh, were falling rather than rising in coal too. Uh, so uh, we didn't have any depletion problem uh, in the real world under in the market economy of the United States. But an article was written in 1931, and again this was during a period where we had oil uh, surpluses rather than uh, any depletion problem. 
by uh, an economist, a highly technical economist named Harold Hotelling. And Hotelling basically started with the premise that you know the in, entire supply of oil or a mineral resource, and if you make that assumption that the total quantity is known, then as you produce a resource, as you produce, consume it, uh, the uh, remaining supply is less, and you go from low-cost to higher-cost deposits. And uh, Harold Hotelling uh, mathematically proved that cost and selling prices of the mineral will increase over time at the rate of interest. And he used calculus at the time. And when the article came out, no one paid much attention to it. It was a mathematical proof, really a, a truism, uh, in the uh, what I call the fixity depletion view. But um, uh, then in the 1970s, when price and allocation controls by the U.S. government created shortages of oil uh, products and uh, natural gas, everyone turned to hoteling. All of a sudden, hoteling became the profit, and energy economists were saying, aha, hoteling shows us uh, what happens uh, with a mineral resource since we can't synthetically reproduce it. Uh, and then uh, the 80s come, deregulation, and oil and gas turns into surplus again, like it was uh, uh, really throughout the whole history of the United States, except for periods of price controls. Uh, so uh, all of a sudden, uh, hoteling is empirically refuted. Now, it turns out that uh, hoteling is correct in a technical mathematical sense, given his uh, assumption of uh, total known fixed supply, but in the real world, he's continually uh, refuted because of what uh, Julian Simon would call the ultimate resource, and that's human ingenuity that uh, actually expands supply in a business or economic sense. Yeah, it's it's interesting how a thinker can take some fragment of truth, which is you can say all things being equal, it's harder to find the next unit of coal than the one you just found by definition, because you found the the existing one and, you know, it's going to take some more effort to find the new one. But they take that, but then they import this whole really in modern terms, environmentalist context of resources or something that nature gives us. And we just sort of take them. And what Simon brings in is sort of the almost common sense idea, although he he explains it in a very clear way, an important way, that no, we actually have to create all this stuff. And there's tons of raw material and not nearly as many usable resources. And the key is to go from the, the raw material to the usable resources. And the whole issue is is ingenuity. And so even if it's harder to get, you know, the unit of coal you'll get in 30 years using today's technology, it's very likely you'll have technology then that'll make it cheaper. Right. Um, the, um, uh, there's a another very important figure in the history of mineral resource thought that anticipated a number of Julian Simon themes, even though uh, Eric Zimmerman, uh, by name, uh, had some flaws in his analysis, but he called his theory... Uh, which was in direct opposition to 
Herald Hotelling, and Eric Zimmerman called Hotelling's proof just a jumble of numbers, close quote. <laughs> um, uh, and the term that Zimmerman used for his theory was the functional theory, in other words, a real-world theory. So what you have is a, is a conflict between the natural science, physical science view of fixity, uh, from which depletion is the natural uh, uh, progression uh, versus the open-ended entrepreneurship or uh, real-world functional theory of Eric Zimmerman and Julian Simon. And it was Eric Zimmerman who first came up with the ideas uh, that uh, resources come from the mind and not the ground. He also understood that resources uh, really are not resources except in the context of man. Uh, and he also uh, talked about how resources are not resources become. In other words, human action becomes very central here. And one other point, the Austrian School of Economics, which is really real-world economics, Ludwig von Mises understood this too uh, in, a, in the 1940s. Uh, that um, we sh should not think in terms of uh, physical absolutes, but uh, we should understand resources in terms of uh, the subjective mind of human action. Yeah, and I think it's important that you have both un understanding the role of the mind and both the, the production of them and then the evaluation of them. So Mises' emphasis is that it's not, it's not, say, that a pound of copper is even inherently a value at all. It could be no value to a certain right. person, like somebody who doesn't know how to use it, or it could be uh, it could be uh, incredibly valuable. So that's that's the role. The the mind has to decide among all the things that I can trade my effort for, you know, in the form of money, uh, what is actually going to benefit my life. And that's something that's that's dynamic and ever changing. And then Julian Simon and definitely Ayn Rand. Uh, emphasize particularly on the production side that your ability to make use of that copper. So the options that you have with copper and the options you have with everything else, those are a product of the mind as well. So it's it's really the the um, human ingenuity view of resources versus ultimately the mindless view of resources. Mm -hmm. um, so let's let's. I think we'll circle back between these two, but let's talk about the, uh, an issue which I think has been a little bit less consistent over time, but still looking back has been live for a while, which is the issue of, of fossil fuels and climate. Reading, like looking back, you see um, you know, mentions of this at least pretty far ago, decades and decades and decades. When did, when did concerns about fossil fuels and climate first become prominent? It could be traced back to the summer of 1988 when we were having uh, droughts and uh, heat waves in the United States. And there was congressional testimony by Senator Al Gore uh, where James Hansen, the NASA uh, scientist, uh, said that he was, uh, quote, 99% sure that the uh, the current uh, climate, uh, and in, in particular the heat and the droughts, uh, were had something to do with the human influence on climate, or 
uh, greenhouse gas uh, emissions, uh, which are about two-thirds from the burning of fossil fuels and one-third from land use changes. Um, and so uh, Hansen clearly implicated uh, carbon dioxide, CO2. Uh, so um, right then, uh, coal uh, and oil, and to a lesser extent, natural gas were implicated for uh, negative uh, 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 impacts on the in climate. And the term became the enhanced greenhouse effect. Uh, effect. Enhanced being the human or anthropogenic uh, component. So uh, right then, the media uh, jumped on it. It was front page news, and uh, the debate has continued, and here we are about 25 years later. Now, how does this connect then to uh, – so, so just doing some, some background research for my book, I've been <laughs> trying to hunt down just every different quote I could find over history, and there's this – I think relatively well-known within the research community quote from uh, Daniel Patrick Monaghan within the Nixon administration where he says, this is 69, where he says that CO2 is going to increase 25% by the year 2000, and this could mean something like 10-foot rise in sea levels. How how common was that kind of viewpoint in the academic world and then in the, the general public? Well, the, uh, there were voices, uh, and it sounds like you have a very early um, example. And during the Carter administration, you can find a few quotations, but uh, globally, uh, the world uh, went through a very slight uh, cooling period between about 1945 and the mid-'70s. So those were uh, sort of voices in the wilderness, and as a matter of fact, uh, you had scientists that were very concerned about global cooling, anthropogenic global cooling, and the culprit then was um, sulfur dioxide, SO2, which they felt had uh, more of an effect than CO2. So it was uh, man-made cooling, man-made warming, and there is a quotation um, uh, from Hol John Holdren, uh, Obama's current science advisor and Paul Ehrlich, where they said, well, we're not sure if it's uh, warming or cooling from the human influence, but it just can't be good. So you have this philosophical assumption that uh, any that, that nature is optimal, natural climate is optimal, and that the human influence in either direction or in both directions at the same time just can't be good. And there's a cover story from World Watch uh, uh, magazine put out by the World Watch Institute. It's called Playing God with Climate, uh, in that uh, um, we, the human influence uh, just can't, can't be good, and therefore, by implication, it needs to be corrected. It's a market failure in our government intervention. Yeah, I hope that, I hope that people took note of the point you just made, because I think that's, that's going to, that's the fundamental in, in a lot of this, and ultimately even the resource stuff is just that there's something wrong with man, there's something wrong with uh, our way of life, and, and there seems to be little concern in these analyses for the magnitude of the change, or even certainly not considering the possibility that it could be net positive. 
Um, and it's, it's simply I, the act of identifying that there's any change that human beings have any involved with is considered damning. Right. Right. Uh, and so there's an agenda at work here, but there's, a, there's some sort of a nature worship uh, and it's very unusual because carbon dioxide has very clear positives for the uh, uh, for the ecological world uh, in that uh, CO2 uh, leads to a greener uh, a greener earth and there's uh, lots of documentation here but um, mainstream environmentalists or Washington DC environmentalists or anti-industrial environmentalists however you want to uh, uh, coin uh, them uh, they just do not want to look at the at the positives even the environmental positives uh, and this gets back to you know the Paul Ehrlich uh, the Malthusian uh, view of the world that uh, people are the problem rather than people being the solution, which is the major theme of Julian Simon. Uh, just to ask a, another question or two about the the global cooling, because I was going to... That, that, definitely in, in my research, there are many more quotes about global cooling than about global warming. Uh, in the 70s, one thing that strikes me, and even looking to quotes back to the late 1800s, there's... There's an interesting dynamic, which is that there's not only this fear of anything human-caused, but there seems to be a tendency to read into short-term trends, long-term disaster. So even in the late 1800s, when the New York Times is repeating some apocalyptic scenario, it's it's not even necessarily that human beings are doing it, but it's just, it's been... You know, it's this is the hottest it's ever been. Or in the 30s, there's a line from the New York Times about, and granted, it was really hot in the 30s, but you know, this is the hottest it's been since 1776. The world is going to end. And what they weren't right. suspecting human cause. So, what, what do you make of of that phenomenon? Well, what what that is, it's a uh, it's a real fear of change. Um, and there's a book written by Virginia Postrel came out maybe 15 years ago called The Future and Its Enemies. And her theme is looking at uh, this mindset that just does not like change. And she calls it uh, sort of the philosophy of uh, status, stasis, uh, no change, <clears throat> versus another view of the world uh, of dynamicism, where uh, you uh, expect change, you know it's inherent, and that change is a good thing. And in, in this doctrine would come, for example, Joseph Schumpeter's idea of uh, creative destruction, where change occurs and uh, not only does the good replace the bad, but the better replaces the good. Uh, so you have forces that just don't want change, a lot of business uh, interests uh, where change will, um, by newcomers in particular, will erode their competitive position, and they don't want change, so they want a tariff or government protection. And so um, uh, there is an environmental, or there is a mindset, and I'm not sure if it's uh, uh, entirely from uh, the environmental movement, or the Malthusian view of the world that just uh, uh, doesn't like change. Um, so that's another current here. 
and in today's climate debate, it's really turned into uh, climate or weather hypochondria, <laughs> hypochondria where uh, any bad event uh, is, uh, you know, it just, you know, it, it has to come from some artificial source, and it must be man. Um, so it's really a PR selling point now is that any weather change is bad because humans must have uh, caused it. Yeah, uh, that that makes a lot of sense. I hadn't I haven't read that book. I, I need to check that out, but it is it is a very fundamental philosophical issue of what is your attitude uh, toward change and and a lot of I think just a, a lot of the motivation of creeds and political systems where you're dependent on government and government is supposed to take care of you has a, has a deep element of that. And I've just been rereading Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand and, and that's one of the ba- basic motives that she identifies of the statists like James Taggart, for those who've read the book, for those who haven't stopped listening and go read it. Uh, but he, he doesn't, he doesn't embrace what it means to be a human being, which is, which is the need to continually think and improve and do different things in response both to the changes in the rest of nature and the changes that man makes. What they want is just a, a static world that just keeps giving them their needs and where they don't have to keep thinking. Right. And in mainstream economics, so-called uh, neoclassical economics, it's very equilibrium-centered. And equilibrium, uh, by definition, is the absence of change. Um, there's no uncertainty. So uh, efficiency to economists today who are uh, working in the in the never-never land of uh, timelessness is uh, where there's a, a known means-ends network and that you are optimizing uh, within that means-ends network, whereas... Uh, real-world economics, Austrian school economics, or dynamic uh, economics, and the key term here is market process, what they see as efficiency is a lot more new means-ends network where you're continually going, uh, you're in disequilibrium, perhaps you're uh, trending toward equilibrium, but there's, uh, there's always change, so there really isn't time to perfect something that's already known, you're in a, a totally different realm where um, something completely new is being introduced, and that is really efficiency. So it's uh, there, there's a real intellectual uh, debate here that gets from uh, uh, environmentalism, sustainable development uh, issues uh, toward a, a dynamic, uh, human-centered view of the world. Yeah, and I think I think that those of us who just have read the literature and come up with a certain, you know, well, agree with the kinds of views that, that you and I do, uh, at least for me, it's it's changed my view of the world, and I think in a way that's much happier, where it's just understanding that all kinds of things are going to change, and some of them I won't like, but that human the human mind gives us this enormous capacity to keep making things better and keep adapting to better things and keep adapting to worse things. And so when I hear, even if it was that, you know, we're definitely heading toward an ice age, and I think that would, that's infinitely scarier to me than it getting a bunch warmer, 
you know, at least we know that human beings can adapt versus being like primitives who are just afraid of change. Right. Um, the example that comes to my mind is I went to Nashville some years ago and I stayed at a hotel. It might be the Opera Land Hotel. And they have a, a huge garden and the whole, whole hotel is underneath a glass bubble. Uh, so, you know, in a worst-case scenario, whether it's the result of nature or man, if climate becomes inhospitable, and certainly this is uh, today the case in uh, northern latitudes, that, uh, you know, you can have uh, water parks, gardens, and uh, whatever in a climate-controlled uh, environment. Of course, it'll need a lot of energy, uh, but uh, that's certainly an option. So, a dynamicist is is uh, is really not afraid of uh, fossil fuel depletion or pollution or climate change. Uh, they're concerned about statism, where uh, 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 society is 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 poor, and where by law you can't adjust to uh, market opportunities. So, uh, when people ask me what is the major uh, a sustainability issue, and I tell them uh, it's not depletion, pollution, or climate change, it's statism that will make energy uh, less uh, reliable, uh, more expensive, uh, and just unavailable. That's what really uh, scares me as a public policy analyst. Right. Now, another question from a different angle about about the global cooling, and the reason I'm I'm stressing this, and, and your work is is one of my favorites at this, is just it's very important to know what the debates of the past look like, because they're so similar to the debates today, and a lot of bad ideas get by just because they're viewed to be novel and based on new observations versus simply just retreads manipulating new data based on old and wrong theories. So I'm curious with the climate, with the global cooling thing, what's what's your sense of mistakes that media made and scientists made in terms of presenting this as for sure? So I, I just quote from the New York Times, scientists ponder why world's climate is changing. A major cooling is considered to be inevitable. And you have this, you have the same intersection you have today, although people want to pretend it didn't exist, of a consensus of all the smart people has determined X and the scientists are complicit in it as in either they participate in it or they don't oppose it for the most part. And then the media says, this is science. They've said it. You just obey. And then it turns out to be completely wrong. Yes. Um, well, the global cooling scare versus a global warming scare um, uh, there's similarities and there's differences. Certainly the media jumped on global cooling like they did global warming. Uh, there were uh, prominent scientists and some studies that came out that were fearing uh, global cooling and were implicating uh, coal burning uh, since uh, so much uh, sulfur dioxide was being uh, emitted, which was blocking, um, uh, blocking uh, the sun. Um, but um, it wasn't uh, global cooling was not a general alarm uh, or a um, a consensus alarm as global warming has been. In other words, a lot of scientists were they knew that there was a CO2 warming effect 
and they weren't sure how it was going to play out longer term. So the global cooling scare was less in the scientific community than the global warming scare. Um, uh, and, um, you know, I, so I think there was, quote, some good science, close quote, uh, at work there. But nonetheless, there's no question that it was a scare, and there were some major scientists behind it, including uh, Stephen Snyder, who went from global cooling uh, alarmism to global warming alarmism in, you know, a matter of a decade. Uh, so it is uh, um, an example that you should look at. And I guess the thing that strikes me, I mean, in some ways it seems, when I read the explanation, it seems more plausible than uh, the catastrophic global warming. But, but what strikes me is the angle of the media. As in, so it, here, here's something we hear often about global warming, or as they now call it, climate change, which is you, you point out, well, hey, you made this prediction in 1990, and it turned out to be completely wrong. And they say, oh, well, but look, we've evolved so much since then. I mean, the, you can't even compare. It's so much better. And we could look at how much has been evolved. But what we know for sure is that if the scientific media back then, or the media reporting on science back then, expressed certainty about something that had absolutely no certainty to it, we cannot trust any expression of its certainty unless it apologized for scientific misconduct. But what we see throughout right. history is the media continually represents the epistemological status of something, and thus people should take that seriously. You shouldn't believe any kind of assessment of probability or certainty that comes from uh, this caliber of certainly the New York Times. Right. Um, now, one thing to keep in mind, uh, when you look at the sustainability issues with fossil fuels, you know, at first it was depletion, and that has sort of come and gone, uh, because in the um, even recently we had a uh, you know new theories of peak oil, uh, and there is a, a shell uh, scientist, a geophysicist, a geologist named M. King Hubbard, uh, who in the 50s and 60s uh, extrapolated. Uh, uh, supply-demand curves for oil and gas and uh, predicted uh, certain years that would be uh, years of peak production, consumption, after which uh, oil and gas uh, would necessarily decline. So so you had depletion that really has always been with us, and you had traditional air pollution aside from climate change because climate change didn't become a big issue until the uh, late 80s. Um, and then, uh, so with depletion, it comes and goes. With air pollution, guess what? Um, even uh, before the federal legislation, uh, air pollution uh, uh, starts to decline, and it's declined ever since. Uh, so uh, the alarmists or the Malthusians and Paul Ehrlichs of the world have had to come to grips with uh, depletion uh, not being a problem, and pollution being solved where you can have more fossil fuel consumption and have a better uh, environment in terms of the criteria pollutants and uh, water pollution, etc. So that leaves one thing, and that is climate change. So climate change has become the mantra of the anti-industrial left, uh, in my opinion, 
because the other two scares of depletion and traditional pollution has been solved by technology. Uh, so, uh, you know, all the eggs are in one basket. So the new uh, consensus on fossil fuels is uh, there's plenty of it, but we can't burn it rather than it's going to naturally run out and therefore we don't have to worry about long-term climate change. Yeah, that's that's an important phenomenon that exists um, more broadly than environmentalism, as, as um, Ayn Rand pointed out with the left, just that they had this prediction that socialism was necessary for prosperity, and then when that didn't work out, you know, briefly their focus was on, well, capitalism somehow caused the Vietnam War, which is ridiculous, but then then the idea that because because capitalism was so productive, the accusation had to switch to, well, actually, it's too productive. That is, by producing all this stuff, we're depleting our resources and despoiling our uh, environment. So that the conclusion that statism and socialism are necessary uh, never changes, but the reason does. And then within this, what you're pointing out as well, it's it's within the idea that we're destroying our environment and need to be restricted. It's, it's the same. So with the resource one... Um, I know you, you know this. I forget the exact details. If we look in the 70s, when we've got, as you mentioned, uh, this price controls, which people don't often enough attribute the problems of the 70s to, when does it become clear that that particular peak oil scare is over, at least for the short term, and thus that would seem to incentivize another uh, uh, catastrophic prediction? Well, um, okay, so we have global cooling at the time uh, of, the, of the 70s. Uh, or, uh, yeah, we have global cooling, and there's no consensus that, uh, you know, global warming uh, is going to be a big problem. Um, so uh, it was um, in, in the winter of 1976-1977, we had... Uh, natural gas shortages. Uh, schools were closed, uh, industries uh, uh, were closed, and people didn't uh, go to go to work, uh, and kids did not go to school because uh, they didn't have fuel, you know, to uh, you know to run the machines and stay warm. It was a real crisis, and Jimmy Carter responded with uh, some emergency, uh, more emergency uh, legislation. But coming out of that winter, you know, starting in the spring of 1977, uh, natural gas turns from shortage to surplus, and it has remained in surplus more or less ever since. And the winter we're going through right now, if this had occurred during price controls, uh, you know, we would have physical shortages. Uh, so uh, natural gas went into surplus, and then oil uh, went into surplus about 1980, 81, and then in the mid 80s there was a huge drop uh, uh, because uh, you know OPEC was uh, keeping up their production uh, and, uh, and production in other parts of the world was increasing. And the joke was is that uh, OPEC would um, uh, they could end their production entirely in ex uh, import their oil in order to, you know, keep oil prices high. <laughs> so in a matter of months, uh, uh, in, in early 1986, 
for a monthly average in the U.S., the average price of oil went from about $28 a barrel to about $12 a barrel. And that, you know, that is a huge, huge drop, and it caused a crisis in the industry. And most of the crises in the uh, U.S. oil and gas industry have been because of oversupply or surpluses, you know, relative to, uh, you know, historic prices than shortages. So, um, you know, by the early 80s, with both oil and gas, uh, you know, the, the, the depletion scare was over. Uh, and, you know, I haven't mentioned coal in any of this because the U.S. being the uh, Saudi Arabia of coal, coal has always been very plentiful, prices uh, low. Um, so, um, uh, uh, at the same time, pollution statistics are uh, getting better and better as we um, uh, consume more oil, gas, coal. So, you know, it was, it became, climate change became the one issue. And I might add, Alex, uh, you know, what happens if uh, fossil fuels win the climate change debate? Uh, and the only thing I can think of that the left would have uh, is that somehow fossil fuels promote inequality. <laughs> and I'm just th th throwing that out, but I'm not sure if there's anything else other than depletion, pollution, climate change. Um, yeah, well, I don't... It'll be, I mean, the, one, one thing I enjoy just about living in the modern world is is the internet with this sort of thing because just doing my research there are people who are already aggregating who are already giving you know who are giving easily accessible historical context to today's predictions and i think that in the if we look at the the last 20 years and certainly the last 10 years there's so much everyone has a paper trail now so we get to see what people said particularly what mainstream publications said we've lived through it and so the hope is that 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 is potential accountability which then better people can use to hold the doomsayers uh, to account because i think it's uh i think it's just an intellectual moral crime that we can have paul ehrlich be a major thinker on energy you know that he he has a post at stanford university that almost no one could acquire. Certainly neither you nor I would be given that post. You, you have a PhD, so it'd be a more plausible thing there. But, but you, know, you know, basically this butterfly doctor who probably contributed to a lot of misery for people and a lot of bad policies in terms of just saying, well, India is a useless country. Don't, you know, nothing yeah, can happen. Uh, uh, John Holdren, who, uh, whose mentor was Paul Ehrlich and who um, has... Um, published, uh, uh, you know, uh, all sorts of bad uh, predictions. He has a prediction that he won't um, renounce that uh, as many as one billion people could die by 2020 due to climate change. Um, so um, uh, it's it's a real shame with paper trails, like you say, that the public uh, can't dismiss these people um, and. I've thought of that often myself. Here we are in the information age, and we have bad science, particularly alarmist climate science, that gets refuted on the Internet in virtually real time after it's gone through a long peer-reviewed process for these scholarly journals. 
Uh, yet, uh, on the other side, some of the scientists, uh, including my, uh, Michael Mann, uh, they are just, uh, they won't make any mid-course corrections. They double down on their views and they call their uh, opponents, uh, such as a man called Judith Curry, a, a prominent uh, a climate uh, scientist, uh, called her testimony before Congress anti-science. And Judith Curry just a week or two ago challenged Michael Mann to tell her where, you know, in, in what way was her analysis anti-science and Mann hadn't responded. But thanks to the Internet, we follow these debates in real time, but it's a shame that we don't have mid-course corrections from those whose uh, predictions have been uh, proven wrong time and again. Yeah, and I think man, as you were mentioning the man example, I got depressed because he's gotten uh, off the hook and there's just this, I mean, he got quote unquote investigated by a bunch of peers and by a bunch of people who have a huge interest um, in terms of reputational and financial and him continuing to be part of their university and bring in millions of dollars in research funding. But at the same time, uh, there are forces that have access to the information and the whole phenomenon, which we talked about with Ross McKittrick uh, a while back on the show, just, just that that could be exposed and publicized right. and that there are relentless people who, although they're most of them, I guess that includes us, are not part of the mainstream, it seems like what the mainstream is is something that is is changing and that in 20 years, by getting a bunch of your, in effect, college buddies uh, to, you know, give you just a rubber stamp of credibility, the whole university system will be different. That I, hopefully, it's a, hopefully it's not just a bunch of incompetence competing, but hopefully it's much more of a public debate where Michael Mann actually has to explain himself and those emails and why he won't give people data so that they can reproduce findings, which is a fundamental of scientific inquiry. Hopefully, hope, I mean, I think the internet at least just gives us a lot more potential to get there. Yes. Uh, so that's a that's a reason for optimism, and you know I expect in my lifetime that uh, we will uh, refute uh, uh, these fallacies, and that fossil fuels will win the sustainable development debate. And I published a book uh, in the late '90s called Julian Simon and the Triumph of Energy Sustainability. And uh, when I wrote the book, I think uh, it was clear that on pollution, uh, uh, depletion and pollution grounds, that fossil fuels uh, were winning and had won the debate. Uh, climate change, I presented the uh, arguments on why I thought this was a false alarm, but I think our case is much stronger now than it was in the late 90s. In the late 90s, that is when uh, global warming really peaked so we had a lot of warming uh, between about or a good deal of warming between about 19 uh, mid 70s and 2000 uh, but since then uh, it's flattened out and we could be in a new era sort of like the uh, the flat to cooling era of 1945 to 75 so um, I think there's reason for optimism I think uh, internet and real-time correction of fallacies uh, is part of it, and certainly the work that you're doing, Alex, uh, is real important, and a lot of us are 
uh, very excited about uh, your themes uh, and uh, uh, what you have become in just a few short years as a leading energy philosopher uh, in the sustainable development uh, debate. So it's great to, uh, to to have your voice, and I know we're all looking forward to your book. Uh, well, well, thank you. All right, I have an, another question about the 80s. So I, I'm particularly interested in the 80s because in, in my book I talk about how, you know, it's being 33 years old right now. In, in 1980, when I was born, and my parents were hearing all of these apocalyptic predictions, mostly focused on the resource thing, which certainly hadn't been extricated by then, but they had also heard global cooling and maybe they had heard global warming. Um, and certainly the pollution issue, these kinds of claims, like 50% of the light is going to be blocked out and the world is getting despoiled, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I was the future generation then, uh, certainly to them. You know, I was the person for whom we were supposed to take action to save me and say, Amory Lovins would, would have said at the time, look, you guys are using too much electricity for the name of little, in the name of little babies like this, we need to reduce electricity consumption. What was the, we, I mean, I think everyone can imagine what would have happened had we followed his advice, but what were the major policy prescriptions around, let's say 1980 to deal with the resource and the pollution issues, particularly among the alarmist types? Well, uh, the, uh, air, there were uh, different debates on uh, air pollution and uh, new regulations, and uh, you know the business lobby was strong enough to you know slow down some of these regulations, make it more digestible, uh, because you know if you if you need new technologies to reduce air emissions of the criteria of pollutants. Uh, if you're able to phase it in and not do it overnight, uh, it can be digested and you can still have uh, economic growth and reductions in emissions. And certainly uh, new technologies, uh, new self-interested technologies in, uh, um, were being introduced and the natural forces of efficiency in a free market, we're reducing uh, emissions uh, outside of the regulations. But um, you didn't have anything uh, that was really uh, catastrophic outside of price and allocation controls that caused physical shortages, where you didn't have heat, uh, you didn't have gasoline, uh, and the rest of it. So um, really, the world has gone along pretty well, uh, uh, but this the climate change debate it is so open-ended. Uh, you can the government can intervene uh, uh, a whole lot in the effects on climate uh, under the uh, official mainstream models is not much. So it's really an open sesame. To uh, uh, it really is a road to serfdom and economic ruin. And there's just no question in my mind that industrialization itself is at risk, uh, given um, you know what. Uh, a number of climate alarmists uh, want to do with CO2 emissions. So I'm not sure if this answers your question, but to me, the climate change debate is a, is, uh, is a sea change from what happened before. Because with something like uh, depletion, the market reality, and thank goodness we had free markets, the market reality was surplus, uh, increasing uh, supply, increasing uh, reserves, resources. 
so uh, the problem just, you know, it got refuted in the real world, and uh, that was also the case with traditional pollution. But uh, climate changes in CO2, greenhouse gas emissions, are a completely different animal and, and a very scary one. That, that makes sense, although in terms of... Uh, I, I've, I'm more familiar with the modern debate uh, for many reasons, but let's say you're a Paul Ehrlich or an Emery Lovins or one of those guys, and or just a general person thinking we're using too much energy, we're depleting resources too quickly, and then also at the same time, something we haven't talked about, oh, renewables have this new potential, which both of those guys were certainly saying back then. What what were what were the policy prescriptions coming from that wing? It couldn't have been, hey, continue using more and more fossil fuels in the eighties. Well, yeah, uh, I'd say beginning in the certainly in the seventies, uh, you have uh, the um, the rise uh, of the uh, the over optimism or the the fantasy that renewable energy was a low cost substitute for uh, oil, gas, and coal, the fossil fuels. And uh, the first thing I say in the, uh, uh, to counter this view is that renewable energy isn't some sort of uh, a new energy future. Uh, it's the energy past because the market share of renewable energy for most of mankind's history was 100%, and it was the era of, uh, really of energy poverty. Uh, it was basically uh, primitive biomass, uh, plant and wood burning. Uh, it was falling water, and it was, uh, uh, you know, the uh, breezes uh, and, you know, a few solar applications. Uh, so the idea that uh, in a large-scale sense uh, we could go to uh, wind power, um, on-grid solar power, uh, and I guess some uh, hydroelectricity, uh, is really a, a fantasy, uh, and and uh, William Stanley Jevons in his 1865 book, The Coal Question, carefully went over all the renewable alternatives, and he uh, came to the conclusion, and I think that the conclusion is still uh, true today, that these uh, energies, um, traditional energies, can't compete with uh, the fossil fuels uh, in that it's dense versus dilute energy uh, and um, they're just not substitutes price aside. So what 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 policies I, I, and I love reading that analysis bias because it's 149 years old and still and still applies. What 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 were the the policies of so right now you know the essential policy is a combination of restrict fossil fuels dramatically okay. mandate so-called right. renewables right. what were the policy proposals back then yeah um yeah i haven't answered your question there um if you look at let's say the uh mandate the mission of the department of energy which was created in 1977 uh they didn't mention wind power what the alternatives were at the time were solar and conservation. And we haven't talked about conservation yet, uh, but that was seen by the environmentalists. And uh, Amory Lovins uh, popularized this. He said that you should see, you should think of conservation as a supply side option. That, uh, uh, you know, instead of thinking of megawatts, think in terms of megawatts. 
And uh, therefore, uh, if you have government-mandated measures, and uh, Lovins was saying uh, not only government mandates, but there's all these wonderful energy conservation uh, ideas that are just out there that people don't realize as if we were all ignorant. Businesses were ignorant about how to reduce their costs by using less energy. And Lovins uh, uh, made energy conservation uh, look like something that was just something you plucked from a tree. And his term was not only is it a free energy conservation, a free lunch, it's a lunch that you're paid to eat. Uh, gosh, uh, how wonderful. But uh, this was an, uh, an alternative uh, reality. Uh, his soft energy path versus the hard energy path of, uh, of uh, infrastructure for oil, gas, and coal was really a, a fantasy. It sounded great, and Jimmy Carter and others embraced it. So to answer your question, we had uh, a supply-side strategy from the anti a fossil fuel lobby of basically solar and not much else. Um, uh, there was some biomass mentioned, but wind, interestingly, uh, really got going in the uh, in the eighties. And then we have this uh, this huge uh, alternative uh, called uh, energy conservation, which I, I use the term conservationism uh, to um, uh, differentiate. You know, government-mandated uh, energy uh, usage restrictions versus what naturally occurs in the market, because we have energy increasing energy efficiency through uh, natural uh, market non-coercive forces. Yeah, it, it is remarkable the extent to which the idea of conservation as a source of energy has been. Uh, popular. I mean, that's like hunger as a source of food or not eating as a, a source of food. I mean, there, there's a lot to say about that. I just want to read a quote from Lovins, which I think captures his philosophy. He says, the rate at which a society gobbles, notice the terminology, like an animal, gobbles energy isn't so much a measure of that society's success or well-being anymore, but rather of its failure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, energy usage is a per se uh, bad. It's guilty uh, until, and this connects with what you said earlier about just the the premise that for human beings to do things to the planet is bad. Well, even even he's able to get away with saying, you know, uh, probably beyond some uh, bare uh, subsistence level, it's bad for us to harness energy from right. the world. Right, and Lovins views conservation from a natural science engineering perspective. Um, if they, if it's technically possible to use less energy, Lovins will say uh, that should be the rule of business. It should be the rule of uh, government efficiency standards versus an economic view, where uh, you know to rip out your existing energy systems uh, certainly has a cost. Um, uh, and you know, installing whole new systems, even if in a technical sense I use less energy, that's economically inefficient uh, because you're you're wasting uh, resources on the whole. So there's lots of fallacies with uh, Lovins, but he's a he's a magician 
when it comes to uh, energy conservation. He makes it sound so good and so easy and so uh, advantageous that it's hard to pin him down. Yeah, it's amazing. It, it's amazing all his money still comes from the speaking circuit instead of the, uh, you know, the free market uh, purchasing of all of his brilliant products like his special car and and this kind of thing. I mean, I think Lovins is, is important. I, I, sort of from, without elevating myself to a given level, I think of Lovins as the exact opposite of myself in terms of just, in terms of philosophy. He's the person I've read that I regard myself as exactly uh, opposed to. And one one element is that his focus on efficiency is, you mentioned the difference between energy efficiency and economic efficiency. And energy efficiency is not an end in itself. There's no... There's no moral law that says you're, you know, that you can, if you get only 33% of the heat content of coal and turn it into electricity, that's somehow bad. No, at one point in history, it was good to get 1%. You know, when you have the Newcomen steam engine, if that's what you could do, and then 10% was huge. And But Lovin's views, uh, he views it as we have just this, our whole obsession in life should be to take as little of en- nature's energy as possible. That's really what it is. That's his religion. And if I think about my life today, I got a lot of stuff going on today. And I would rather, my focus should not be on how do I use as little energy as possible. It's how do I enjoy my life as much as possible. And part of that is I need to be efficient enough with energy use and anything else that I'm not consuming more than I uh, produce, but this whole way of life where you just feel guilty for every act of consumption and your focus right. is diverted from being productive and pursuing happiness, I think is the really the core difference between you know, this, the fundamentalist environmentalist and the you know the pursuer of happiness. Right, uh, and Julian Simon made the point that the the scarcest uh, resource. Uh, is our time. Uh, and you might say that the scarcest resource uh, uh, is you know, human happiness or our own happiness because we don't live forever. So we really want to try to maximize uh, our, the use of our time and our happiness uh, within moral constraints. Um, um, and Focusing on false environmental issues really uh, uh, is inefficient in, the, in terms of our time and our happiness. So I think you're on to a major theme there. Yeah, and that's going to be an idea in my book. And I, and I do think that it, it, it there's a reason to put it fundamentally in terms of time, because time is, I mean, time is the basic opportunity in life, and then happiness is the goal of that opportunity. I mean, you want to maximize it across time, but yeah, time efficiency is, is, is everything. And that's the resource. And from a humanistic perspective, you're just thinking of what is the best thing that I can do with my time. And that includes how can I expand that as much as possible, but it is always limited. We are, we're all going to die. And thus, as George Reisman put it to paraphrase him, uh, you know, people just spending their lives sorting through trash is, is just an insult to the possibility of life and the, and the time that we have. Right. 
Um, okay, we are, I'm running you a little long, but you know a lot of stuff that helps me. So uh, I'm, <laughs> uh, let's see if I have any more questions. Otherwise, I'll wrap up. Oh, well, yeah, we, do, we have to say this. So if, if I go back to this example of 1980, I'm born August 1st, 1980. You know, my parents are in a world where fossil fuels are supposedly ruining everything. They're going to run out in the late 80s. They're going to hear that. You know, there's also overpopulation, you know, which is still part of the resource thing. They're part of this overconsumption, da 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 da. What actually happened? To summarize, in the last right. 33 years, what actually right. happened given all these predictions? Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think it would be useful for, uh, you know, even the preface introduction to your book to just look at the data, the raw data. Yeah, that's in chapter one. Uh, uh, to today. Uh, the EPA has all the data on uh, the criteria uh, pollutant emissions, um, uh, water water pollution. Uh, you can look at energy efficiency from the uh, uh, from the Department of Energy uh, for power plants, for uh, industrial boilers, for um, you know transportation. Um, let's see. You can look at uh, Proven reserves, probable resources, and speculative resources for oil, gas, and coal, United States, and for the world. Uh, um, and then I guess the only other thing would be to look at uh, average temperature for, you know, let's say 80, 81 versus, uh, you know, 2012, uh, 13 and uh, uh, look at the difference there. Now that uh, statistic will, will show some warming, uh, but it'd be an interesting statistic to look at, but you can add that uh, you know, if you were born 10 years later, the, uh, the change wouldn't have been uh, just, uh, statistically significant. So you know, let's say you come up with 20 indicators uh, regarding fossil fuels, and I think you'd have to say, all of them uh, uh, point toward the increasing sustainability of oil, gas, and coal, and not the opposite. Yeah, and I, I, I think it's important to add to that just all the... So we're talking about an environmental perspective here, um, and, and that's important, particularly because that's, that's the realm of criticism. But ultimately, environment is just a means to an end. I mean, environment is just an aspect... <laughs> of making human life as good as possible, at least it is if, if you're a humanist, which I am. So the real thing for me is, oh my gosh, look at how much longer and better billions of people's lives have gotten that would not have gotten that way had we followed the advice of the anti-fossil right. fuel. There's no way you have seven-year life expectancy in China and India. That's two and a half billion people. There's no way. If you, had, if you had gone straight to renewables, used these solar things that could barely heat up a swimming pool, you know, back back then, and even today's intermittent, unreliable uh, technologies. And then and then with Lovins, you've got this idea that, well, we need to use less. And the, the obvious area of waste for him was electricity. Electricity, wow. which today, no, he can't get away with. So, of course, they always switch what's wow. bad. But that what strikes me is just how much positive we've gotten from this dramatic, not only maintenance, but increase in cheap, plentiful, reliable energy. And at the same time, and this is how I fit it in my mind, at the same time, all the things they claim were getting worse, were not getting worse in the way they say. And in fact, fossil fuels have made better, both through 
technological right. advancements in diminishing any negatives, but also the power of energy to clean up an environment and, and to expand right. resources. So, so you could look at every uh, welfare indicator of human life from uh, the size of uh, houses, living spaces, whatever, and there's a positive correlation between uh, increasing energy usage, which means energy availability and affordability. And there's one, there's one other thing that uh, was just in my mind that you uh, might want to look at, too. Oh, uh, energy poverty. The number that uh, I hear today is that 1.3 billion people do not have access to modern energy. Uh, and that means uh, electricity um, in particular. Uh, and I wonder what the number was in 1980. That would be a good uh, num uh, statistic for you. Yeah, I mean, we'll look that up. That's an interesting, I, and I've used that stat with 1.3 billion in electricity. I mean, one, one thing that you run into with those is that you have, you know, all, uh, these are almost exclusively politically caused at a certain at a certain level. As in, it's not as if we don't. The, the industry is capable of producing energy for everyone to have electricity. Which, right. by the way, the, that is only true of the fossil fuel industry. There's no other industry that can come close. Uh, but it is. But so what's noteworthy though is, I think to me is that to the extent that people have freed up to where politically they'd be allowed to use energy, the fossil fuel energy has made it. Uh, affordable. Whereas you, if you're free right. to use windmills, doesn't matter. You're not powering your hospital system. You're not powering right. a steel industry, a cement industry, a construction industry. So it's wherever the wherever wherever people have had the freedom to use energy, you know, the fossil fuel industry has done its job. Right. And I think the the major theme there is that uh, energy sustainability or sustainable development in general. Uh, is a question of economic freedom versus statism. Yeah, and I'd say energy just, I don't like sustainability as a term because it glorifies repetition too much, but if we think of it as energy progress or energy progressiveness, and, and certainly sustainable only in the sense of of you know, the quality of life is sustainable or, or better, but it's, I think one aspect we haven't discussed is just the glorification of repetition in the environmentalist philosophy. And this, this integrates with the point you made about change where, you know, you don't, the capitalist way of life is not one in which you keep doing the same thing over and over. And you don't make choices based on, will someone be able to do the exact same thing in a thousand years? You make choices based on, does this work for me now? Is it compatible with me doing successful things in the future? And by people doing that, again, my generation is better off in so many ways than my parents could have even imagined if they tried to conserve and stop doing everything in the name of future generations. And even if the climate, even if there had been more storms, which I don't think there have, we'd be so much better off because we are, I don't know what the term is, dynamicists, because we are dynamic and and that's, the precious thing politically is the freedom to act, and sort of the precious thing um, existentially is the ability to act through human ingenuity. And anything that gets in the way of that is is bad. And as long as you have that, you can pretty much do anything. Yeah, that's a very liberating philosophy, and it uh, it makes me happy. Thank you, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't come up with it myself, but it's, <laughs> I I, uh, I like it. 
I like it as well. Well, Rob, um, I've, I've kept you long, but I, I appreciate this. I have tons of ideas that I can apply to my book based on this is exact. And you answered a lot of questions I've been, been wondering about. I love, I love the historical perspective and the, the precision that you have and sometimes catching me making certain mistakes. So, uh, thanks so much for coming on and where can, where can people find out about your, your latest work? Well, uh, amazon.com uh, will have my book. If you're interested in a history of energy, natural resource thought, uh, capitalism at work, I think is a good book. And uh, you might find some selected copies of an out-of-print book uh, called Julian Simon and the Triumph of Energy Sustainability. Uh, so those are the uh, main ones. And um, Alex, we're looking forward to your work. November 11th. Okay, you're, uh, you better get going. <laughs> I'm working on it. Thanks, thanks for coming on the program, Rob. You bet. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Rob Bradley for coming on the program. Usually we don't go over an hour in the main interview segment, but I had a lot of questions. He had a lot of answers. Hopefully you got a lot of information uh, out of it. Since I don't like to go over an hour, I'll, I'll wrap up now. I think we covered everything I wanted to cover. I'll just say that uh, make sure to check out my Forbes columns because I should be covering the topic I'll be covering in the book. And... You know, Facebook, industrialprogress.com for the newsletter. That's always the most important thing. Make sure you're on. Try to get one or two friends on this week. And besides that, as always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Next week, we'll be back with a new book chapter topic, a new guest. And until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.